Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Many years ago, I came across a story that I really intrigued me. I think I've used it once before, so if you haven't memorized, I apologize to you. But it's a story about a young girl named Addie Mae Collins. Um, back in 1963, so that's a few years ago, 1963, she was 14 years old, and, uh, and she died. Uh, she was part of a church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. That's a tragic thing. And for many years afterwards, her family would go and visit her grave site and uh, was very you know, grieved by the loss of her. For some reason, and I have no idea why, um, sometime later, it was 1998, so it was 35 years later, they decided they were going to exhume her and move her to another burial site. And when they went to do that, the plot where they believed she was buried was empty. There was nothing there. They were really, really distraught. How does something like this happen? You know, there's all kinds of reasons, possible, maybe just poor records, or maybe they lost track of where it was, or whatever. They, they put the tombstone in the wrong place. Who, who knows what the real reason was? But one explanation that was never proposed by anyone no one ever suggested that Addie Mae resurrected and was alive, walking around on earth. No one suggested that. No one believed that. No one thought of that. An empty grave alone does not prove a resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, there were many who, uh, who were present and know about it. No one saw Jesus resurrect but many of them saw the resurrected Jesus afterwards. In fact, when I did some numbers putting together, I think there were over a thousand people that on 10 or 11 different occasions, I witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Although a lot of people saw him crucified, there was no denying that. You know, the loss of blood, the loss of life, the limp body, no denying any of that. And then a lot of people saw him later for the next 40 days walking around and ministering to people. Jesus' friends were not necessarily looking for what they were about to see. They never fully understood that uh, when Jesus told them what was coming, they just didn't grasp that somebody was really going to rise from the dead. What we do know is that ultimately death is a byproduct of sin. In fact, in uh, Romans chapter 6, it says that the wages of sin is death, and that's for all of us. Death entered the world because of disobedience. But Christ came to the world to redeem us, to buy us back this fallen human race that needed rescuing. Jesus came to kill death. He took sin's penalty so that the guilty could go free. 
you remember the events of what happened around his, the end of his life, the last couple of days, uh, I'll start up in the upper room uh, where they were celebrating the Feast of Israel, particularly coming up the Passover, one of the biggest and the oldest of all the feasts that they would have. It was to celebrate the um, escape, the exodusing from Egypt. They were instructed to always do that on the 14th of Nisan, which is um, coordinated with us sometime around March or April, depends on a lot of other uh, factors. And they would, on that day, they would slay lambs, usually in late afternoon, probably around 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, something like that. The Passover was followed by a seven-day feast called the Unleavened Bread. And they were up in the upper room preparing for these kind of things when Jesus um, got up from the meal and he washed feet. So they were fellowshiping together, eating, he got up, he washed feet, and when he sat down, eventually, after discussion, he mentioned that one of the men in that room were going to betray him. During that time, he pointed out to them that it would be Judas. Didn't take much to figure out that this night is totally different than any other time when their families may have observed the Passover. After the meal was over and they spent some time fellowshipping together, Jesus led them out to a familiar place where he would like to go and pray in a garden. And he did. And he asked um, his disciples to stay, and he brought three of his inner circle, um, Peter, James, and John, and had them come with him. And at a certain point, he said to them, you stay here, I'm going to go a little farther, just over here, and I'm going to pray. And he did, and you remember the prayer that he prayed when he asked God to remove this cup, if there's any way possible, but there wasn't, because it was their plan all along. And then he said, but not my will, your will be done. And then he came back to the disciples, and there they were sleeping. And, and he talked to them, he went back, and this happens three times, and each time he finds them there. Ultimately, while they're talking, a bunch of soldiers come in, Judas with them. Judas walks up to Jesus and plants a kiss on his cheek to uh, point out who he was, and the arrest process has now begun. Peter, who was so bold earlier, he even said to Jesus that I will die defending you. And Peter's the guy who jumps up, and why he had a sword, I don't know, or where he got it, but he takes a sword and he whacks off the ear of one of the Roman men soldiers. I think his name was Malchus. And Jesus, you know, rebukes Peter, just, we're not a kingdom of violence, takes the ear, glues it back on to Malchus's head. Well, the arrest is completed, and Jesus is taken, and throughout the night, there's six different trials that take place. By the way, some of them were Jewish trials, according to Jewish law. Some were Roman trials, according to Roman law. All of them were illegal. All of them were done against the rules of how they did things. When morning broke, the crowd was starting to assemble. They were starting to come and get ready for their day's activities. Passover's about to begin. And uh, one week earlier, the crowd had assembled when Jesus came in uh, riding on a donkey. And the crowd at that time were yelling, um, Hallelujah, uh, King of Kings, praising him. Now the crowd's going to have a different tune. Sometime during this time, 
Peter gets confronted because he and John are the only two of the disciples that hung around long enough to see what was going on. And Peter's kind of watching from a distance. John knew people, so he was in the inner sanctums. And Peter's watching, and on three different occasions, someone says to him, Hey, aren't you one of them? Aren't you with him? Aren't you uh, a Galilean? Don't you follow Jesus too? This guy who was so bold, he was going to take on the entire Roman Empire, all of a sudden, no, wasn't me. And even on one, one of those occasions, someone says to him, your speech gives you away. You have an accent. You're Galilean. You sound like one of them. And Peter used his speech cursings to try to separate himself from Christ. That was a terrible moment for Peter. A terrible time and one that he probably never fully forgot about. So he got over it, but he didn't forget about it. Well, during this time, after the trials and things, Jesus goes through a lot of humiliating stuff, beatings and scourging and mocking. He's interrogated and falsely accused, and then ultimately the sentence of death is passed down, even though Jesus is a totally innocent person. We know he's innocent because when he started his public ministry, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17 tells us about his baptism. And at his baptism, God the Father out of heaven spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God gave his approval. God indicated who he was. Even at the trials, Pilate refused to directly pronounce a death sentence and said, I find no fault in him. So he just turned him over to the mob to do whatever they wanted. Judas, the hated Judas, the guy who betrayed Jesus, afterwards, Matthew 27, verse 4, says, I have betrayed innocent blood. He knew it. The religious leaders of that day that, that just so despised Jesus because he was cutting into their action and he was taking away from their prestige and they wanted above anything else to get rid of him and they could not find any fault in Jesus so they had to hire false witnesses to just kind of twist his words and try to somehow convict him and the Bible tells us even the demons knew who Jesus was that he was the son of God he is the perfect Passover lamb. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says about Jesus that he knew no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says that he did no sin. And 1 John 3.5 says in him is no sin at all. None. Well, ultimately, they lead him to the hill of Calvary and they grab the services of a guy named Cyrus to go almost the extra mile to go with him carrying the cross. And then the crucifixion. Three victims, four soldiers, 120 guards, and a crowd of observers. And what did they see? They saw a lot of miracles. They saw darkness cover the face of the earth. They saw and heard and felt an earthquake that took place that shook open graves. And in the temple, not very far away, less than a mile away, from the top to the bottom, a thick curtain, a veil, was torn in half from the top to the bottom. It was probably 30 to 40 feet high. 
Yes, the, the death of Jesus was different. The cross paid for sin. His death was different because others had suffered death, but he achieved it. His death was different. Because others' death frustrates their work, but his death consummated his work. It's what he came here for. People die, and they can't help that. Most don't want it. But Jesus willed himself to die. He chose to die. He came to die. We have birth and children, and we're excited because it's life, and life is precious. We want them to live. They were born to live. Jesus was born to die. And he gave up his spirit, and he became dead. A little bit later, when he was um, came in a vision, and Revel, the book of Revelation talks about how he appeared to the apostle John. This is like six decades later. And he says to him something really interesting. I am the living one. I was dead, but now, behold, I am alive. And I'm alive forever and ever. Revelation 1.18. And that's true. Jesus was dead, but he became alive. And it's true, he's going to live forever and ever. Death was not able to hold him. His death was not a martyrdom. It was an atoning sacrifice. He went to the cross in order to set us free from our sins. We rejoice today because Christ is alive and he will be alive forever and ever. He's alive and with his people today and forever. When Christ rose from the dead, he not only wanted escape and deliverance for himself, but he wanted an escape and a deliverance for all of us. Ever since he came from the grave, he has stripped death of its power. Every person since then has had the experience of his power and his grace over death and resurrection. On one occasion, Jesus was talking to some friends of his, Mary and Martha. They had just informed him that their brother Lazarus had passed away. And he said to them, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives, believes in me, will never die. I think it was Dwight Moody once that said, uh, you're going to hear a report someday that Dwight Moody has died. He said, don't ever believe that for a moment, because I will be more alive at that moment than I ever have been before. And I think that's what Jesus means when he says, even though we die, we're still alive, because we will know more and see more and understand more and experience more when we're with him than we ever have in this life. Today, we live in a land of the dying but someday we're going to live in the land of the living jesus is the resurrection his is the pattern for all of us the bible says jesus is the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through him there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved believe in the lord jesus christ and you will be saved that means saved on earth, saved for eternity, saved from death, and saved from separation from God. Jesus also said, because he lives, we too can live. 
Yes, the death of Jesus was different. The resurrection of Jesus made a difference for all of us. When Christ was on the cross, there were seven statements that he made. One of the statements, my favorite one, it's really just one Greek word. It's a big Greek word. It's hard to pronounce. But it's translated, it is finished. I love that word because unlike what it may appear to some, it's actually a real cry of victory. I, I found out that sometimes that word was used by bankers in, in their work when someone would make their final payment on a debt and it was all taken care of, no more strings attached, everything's done, this is final, clean and clear. That's the word they would use. It is finished. Jesus said that because the debt had been completely paid. He paid it all. He paid for the sins of every person ever and God accepted it. Hallelujah, what a Savior we have. Christ had great joy in this triumph, and I think that's why he used the victorious cry, because sin and death had been conquered, and the price had been totally paid. It's done, clean and clear. God's righteous demands have been satisfied. Jesus is alive. He's still alive. He's reigning. He's still on his throne today. His enemies had done their very best, or maybe their worst, in trying to squelch and defeat him. But he swept it all aside. He took care of it by one single motion of his majestic will. He rose again from the dead. And his joy and his victory inspires our joy and our victory as well. It turns away our sorrow. Turns away our grieving over sin and grieving over death. And all of us have done that. All of us have experienced loss. <clears throat> At first, the resurrection meant life and victory over the grave. But in the long run, it meant Christ's glory and triumph over everything. The resurrection means so much to us. It means that Christ is Lord and that he has won the victory. We now have a standing before God that we never could have had without him. We now can have a confidence, not in ourselves, but in the finished, victorious work of Christ on the cross. I think the greatest words that may have ever been spoken were stated by the angels when they said, He is not here, for He is risen. What a victory. His resurrection is the crowning climax of His love for all of us. The resurrection of Christ is God's stamp of approval on the atonement that he purchased through his dying. Easter is a fun time. Easter is a promise. It's a promise of peace between us and God. It's a, part, a promise of pardon of our sins. The open grave leads to an open heaven for all of us. And there is an Easter triumph. There's a victory over sin and a victory over life and a victory over death. The greatest enemies that we have are sin, suffering, and death. In Christ, 
we have a victory over sin through his death. In Christ, we have a victory over suffering through his presence with us. And in Christ, we have a victory over death through his resurrection. The great seal and evidence of the victory of Christ over sin and death is indeed the resurrection. It's the final word on everything. It proves who God is, who Christ is. Jesus stands before you as the perfect representation of agonizing love, of a love that reached far and wide. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he wrote this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We were bought with a price. It was not cheap. It's not shallow. It's not small. It was huge. It's the life and the blood and the body of our Savior Jesus who paid for our sins and then sealed the deal when he walked out victoriously. Even before Jesus lived, there was a man named Job. Job said this in Job chapter 19, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives. That's amazing. Job, Job didn't know Christ. He didn't know how that was going to work out. But he knew that there was a redeemer, someone who redeems and buys back and purchases back. He knew there was someone who was going to pay for his sins. And he knew that he lives. But the best part about there, that phrase in there where it says, I know that my redeemer lives, is the word my, my. That he belonged, Job possessed God and God possessed him. The best thing about Jesus Christ being risen from the dead is when you can say, my Redeemer lives, that he's yours, that you by faith know him, that you trust in him, that you believe in him, that he is yours. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, how we thank you for the day that we enjoy and celebrate today when, as we gather with friends and families and enjoy food and fellowship and festive activities but it's really way larger than that it is the biggest thing in human history that we serve a risen savior who's in the world today and we know that he's risen doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or says we know that our god is very real and very powerful and very much alive and that he can be my Redeemer, just simply by faith trusting in Him. He has paid the price. We just received that gift. Lord, thank you that today it's very possible here and all across this world that some can come to know you as Savior because of who you are and what you have done. They too could have the promise of abundant life today and eternal life forever. Lord, we do thank and praise you for defeating sin 
and for giving a death blow to death so that we can have the promise of eternal life. We praise you, Jesus, and worship you. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.